welcome. This is the book Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. Dr. Peter Atia is a longevity expert and the book is a manual on how to try to live a longer and healthier life, or at least to try to stack the odds in your favor in living a longer and healthier life. I just checked in Amazon and this book is ranked number 14 in the bestsellers of all books. So people actually are interested in trying to link a longer life. Now, you might think that living longer and healthier is one topic that we can all stand behind it and, th and support it as a virtuous endeavor, that whether you're on the right or on the left, you would agree that it's a good thing to live a longer and healthier life. Well, you would be surprised. Actually, there are many people, many prominent intellectuals and philosophers who actually claim that living a longer life, that expanding, radically expanding life expectancy is something that will be detrimental, both for the individual and for society. Now, we beg to differ, so the topic of today's New Idea Life, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute, is a defense of life extension. So, Dan, this topic was your idea, so what uh, motivated you in diving deeper into it? Hi, Nikos. So, I have always wanted to live a long, healthy life. I've always been interested in health and fitness, but I had something happen to me recently in May that got me actually a little bit emotional about this issue. So uh, in May, I had a, a medical emergency. I won't go into detail, but I had to go to the emergency room and I had a lot of time lying there to think about what was going on. And I was thinking, if this thing had happened to me in 1900, I would be dead. And I was looking at the nurses and the doctors um, taking care of me and the things they were able to do, the technology they used and their ability. and. You know, so I'm 39 right now, and I was thinking, if it weren't for these people, the technology here and, and their abilities, I would be dead by the time I'm 40. Um, so, you know, I think th those, those doctors earn my profound admiration and, and appreciation. And that's for extending my life, you know, at this point. But looking ahead, you know, if we want to live past 80, past 90, it, it's the people who might make it possible for us to live that long just as much deserve our appreciation and profound gratitude. Um, and, you know, it's getting more life is more time to pursue your values. It's, it's more time for me to do all the things that I love and that make life worth living. Um, and so that's kind of the mindset I had when I was reading Peter Atia's book. Um, it's, and it made it, all the more important to me. Uh, and so we both read the book uh, and I wanna emphasize, we're not doctors. Uh, we're not here to comment on the medical advice in there. Um, but one thing that I think everyone would find interesting about it, um, it, it's a good illustration of the fact that more life is not just more time with a pulse. If, if you read this book and you're expecting just, oh yeah, we'll be alive longer, and that's what you'll get out of it. That's not the kind of life extension he's on about. Uh, he is, he, he uses the concept of a health span. So he's not just interested in increasing lifespan. He's interested in increasing the time you have to be healthy, able to do things, able to go about 
and enjoy your job and your hobbies um, and, and your values. Um, he's also, I think, really good about pointing out that it's not just physical health that you need to be interested in when you're interested in prolonging your life. Um, we're not just bodies. We are beings that are both minds and bodies tightly integrated. Um, and he's, I think, has some good illustrations of that fact in how interested he is in mental health, emotional health. Um, he makes the argument that if you, um, if you're not happy, if you're not enjoying your life, you won't have the will to prolong your life and you won't be able to take care of yourself. Um, and so there's a, a really good illustration of why this kind of integration of mind and body matters to how we approach life extension. Um, the way I'm thinking of it is, yeah, go ahead, Nico. I, I, I know you had your own observations about the work. And, and no, just be, on, on, on what you said about being able to pursue your values for longer. Just before the show started, I saw a tweet. It, yesterday was Mick Jagger's birthday. And there was this impressive video of him dancing, doing a, a rehearsal. And probably it, this video is from when he's in his late 70s. And the way he moves, the way he dances, this is, this is what health span means. This is the whole point of longevity, that the things that get you going, the things that are values in your life, the things that are important in your life, you can do it for what you can do now and what makes your life beautiful now. You can also do it later. But the point he makes is that re this requires efforts. And this is an effort that we don't really quite often understand what are its our techniques. But the most important thing, as you said, is that this is not for its own sake, though, that I reach the level of the year 100. Because if by that time you cannot do the things that make life worth living, there's no point in living till the age of 100. So, the, so from, let's say, the objective point of view that says that values are, is, is what makes life what it is, Peter Atia doesn't put it in these terms, but he gets it, that life is about pursuing beautiful things, goals, values. Yeah, exactly. More time alive should be more time to do all the things you love about life. Um, so shall we jump in the book? Yeah, good idea. So I will give you my overall take on the book and then we can, if you, if you find any detail that uh, is of interest to you, we can uh, expand on this. So the first thing with this book is that it's very moderate in its scope, very moderate in scope. So if you expect that I will read this book and I will be reassured that we, our generation will live till 120, as we hear, or that there is this magic diet that will make you bulletproof uh, for cancer. None of this is in the book. So the book, and this is to Peter Atia's uh, credit. He's not a snake oil salesman. So it's he's a good scientist he's quite objective and what he's telling you is you have to be proactive and you have to be ambitious if you want your health to be at the stage at the level where it should be so you shouldn't see yourself as saying oh, well now i'm 40 you know now the decline starts he says every decade you have to within the context of how old you are being healthier than you went the previous decade because you want for as long as possible to avoid what he calls the four horsemen 
the, the, the things that are most likely to kill you. Uh, card, uh, disease of the heart, heart disease, cancer, neurodegenerative, I butchered the term, neuro, because I have the Greek term in my life, uh, neurodegenerative disease and metabolic dysfunctions. So how do we avoid these four horsemen and how do we decay, how do we delay the decay? He suggests four things. The first, which for him is the most important, is exercise. And by exercise, he means weight resistance training, stability training, aerobic training, and a, comb a healthy combination of all three. Then diet, but he's not dogmatic about diet. Many people get religious about the diet. Oh, I'm doing, a, I don't know, keto, and keto is the secret. Atiyah says, no, it depends on your life, your metrics, your own body. So diet important, exercise he considers the most important, sleep, obviously taking medicine and sometimes supplements, but also, as you said, emotional health. And this is what I found most interesting in the book. So my ups and downs in the books was, in the beginning, I was full of hope. I was like, okay, this will be the secret how to live to 120. Then I got a bit, particularly after the, 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 the chapters about the four horsemen, the four diseases that kill us. I got almost depressed. I spent 24 hours in an existential doom. But then he gives the last two chapters, which is about uh, emotional health. And in these chapters, he gives what we would call the difference between motivation by love versus motivation by, by fear. So Peter Atia, surprisingly to me, because I hadn't heard him speak publicly about that, he struggled with his mental health and he struggled with an obsession about, I have to fix all my metrics so that I live longer, to the point where his life was not worth living in terms of it was not a happy life. So at some point, his therapist tells him, why do you want to live so long if you're not so happy? So he made this switch in his mind that the most important thing is to live a good life, a life motivated by values, rather than being obsessed on how to expand it. So he tried to be healthy, not motivated by the fear of death, but by the love of life. So this was the happy ending, the reframing that made the rest of the book stick for me. Yeah, and, and I think that approach already answers one of the oldest objections to life extension. Uh, so for example, Francis Bacon, um, the 17th century philosopher who is the father of the scientific revolution, uh, he was very interested in life extension. He thought that was a major purpose of doing science at all. Um, and there are people who reacted to him and to other proponents of life extension. Um, for example, Jonathan Swift has a group of people in his novel Gulliver's Travels that um, I think are, are a swipe at Bacon. Uh, these people just keep aging and aging and aging and they stay alive, but they just, their lives just get worse and worse and they're all decrepit and graded. Um, and, and often that has throughout history been the concern people have with life extension. Um, and it's a, concern, uh, it's a concern people still have. Uh, for example, just, I think, 2014, um, there was an article in The Atlantic by uh, Barack Obama's advisor, Zeke Emanuel, titled, get this title, why I hope to die at 75. And the basic reason is the same thing people were saying to Bacon, which is 
I mean, after you get to be 75, life is no good anymore. Like you just keep aging and you're in pain, uh, your mind goes, and, and what's that? What kind of life is that? But I think if you read Peter Atia's book and you see what people interested in life extension are actually saying the, the recipe for life extension is going to be, that's, that's, not, that's not what they're trying to get us to achieve. Uh, we're, we're after a life where we can still be healthy, active-minded, still pursue our values. And, and I think Peter Atia would be the first one to agree that if, if you get up to the age where you're no longer able to think, no longer able to be happy, yeah, there is no longer a reason necessarily to prolong your life. Right. But I, I think another both of us are kind of hopeful about... Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the first part, which is of interest to, let's say, someone who is interested in the ideas that we have is, yes, how I can live longer in terms of pursuing my values. The other thing that I found very interesting in the book is his criticism to the medical model, to the, to the dominant narrative, to the, to the dominant mindset with which the science of medicine operates and has been operating probably for more than 100 years. So he calls this the difference between medicine 2.0, which is what we have now, and medicine 3.0. And he characterizes medicine 2.0 as, first of all, very risk averse. But as Peter Atia says, quite often being risk averse is a very, very big risk in itself. So the, the medicine as it is today, the, the, the model is, at some point, you go to the doctor where you already have a serious problem and the doctor tries to mitigate. Or he tries to give you some more years to live with one of the diseases that will probably at some point kill you. But there's no point because your, your health has already deteriorated. Whereas, he says, we should be way more ambitious and proactive. Ambitious and proactive means there should be more emphasis in actually trying to prevent this disease from coming in the first place or catching it very early. Why don't we do this? Here we go to the second main problem. The paradigm, the dominant paradigm of medicine today, to, to speak our language, is very collectivistic, very collectivistic, which means that the point is we want to make sure everyone has equal access to healthcare, which is translated, though, that we are seen as a statistic. We are seen as this is the best way to have the best result for the greatest amount of people. But this is not how one's, one should see his or her own health. Let me give an example. Peter Atia, and this, obviously this is not a medical advice, I'm just giving an example from the book. He says for the proper, he says, I would be more aggressive with uh, scanning uh, for some particular types of cancer. So he says, for example, colonoscopy should start at 40. You go and ask a doctor these days, can I start my colonoscopies at 40? And they will tell you no, because according to these aggregate statistics, uh, for every 500 of these, we're going to find one case and it's not worth it. But then you ask the same doctor, hey, forget the aggregate statistics. For me, for myself, would it be good to start at 40? And then they will say, well, well, you know, there's always some small risk in any kind of such of a procedure. But yeah, for you specifically, maybe it would make sense. 
So you see the model is not based on what is good for you, for each individual. It is based on what is good for the aggregate or to put differently for the collective. So Peter Atia says we need to be more proactive and we need to focus on the individual. So this is another point in the book where I would not only say very good point, Dr. Atia. So you mentioned, Nikos, that this book is popular. It's a bestseller. Um, and yet we're, we're, you know, this is an episode in defense of life extension, because I think both of our experience is that although there are a lot of people out there who want to live longer, most people are either indifferent or ambivalent about life extension, um, or if they're not opposed to it altogether. Um, so I have taught the topic of um, life extension, immortality, uh, in philosophy classes, and my experience is that students, they'll say, you know, yeah, I, I don't want to die at 70, but, you know, ideal life is basically what my parents are living to. We don't need to live longer than that. And I think they tend to look to their parents and see by the time their parents are 70, 80, 90, they're basically, they've had enough and they're ready to go. Um, and part of that is that their parents that they look to are maybe um, in pain, they maybe are, are losing their abilities. And, um, and in that kind of situation, I think that they're thinking, yeah, the healthy thing to do is to accept that I can no longer live the kind of life I want. Um, but um, we were both looking also at some, uh, some poll data. I think this poll data is from 2013 or so. Um, yes. Do you want to talk a bit about this? Yes. So people were asked, what is your, what is your attitude towards a, a longer life? How would, you, how would you view living decades longer? When people asked, would you, as a, you as a person, would you think this is good for you? 56% would not want to live decades longer. That, that for me, this was a shock. 56% are basically, no, I've had, it's, that's probably enough, I don't want. And only 38% say, yes, I would want, I make the positive case, I would want. Now, see how interesting though it is. When, when they were asked, not would you want to live longer, would you want other people to live longer? Then 68% says, now I assume most people wouldn't want to live longer. So it's, it's a very bleak view. It's quite a bleak view. Now, what about for the whole society? Would it be good for society if we live longer? And 51% claim, no, it would be bad for society. 51% claim it would be bad for society. Again, this was something so alien to how I viewed the world that I was very surprised when I saw the statistics. But then you understand why these are statistics are what they are when you see the reasons. And keep an eye, people, when we see the reasons why people claim that living longer is not a good idea, see familiar themes for the dominant philosophy of our times. So people say it wouldn't be good to live longer because everybody should be able to get treatments. Sorry, only wealthy would have access to, uh, to these treatments. So this is the argument that says if not, everyone can have access to these treatments, then no one should have. Another argument is that the, 
that uh, longer lives would strain natural resources. So six out of 10 say we wouldn't want people to live longer because nature wouldn't be able to cope with the burden. So here already we see two big themes, two big ideas that are prominent in philosophy today. So when all the time we talk about the importance of the, the guiding philosophy in an era, we're not talking about general things. The ideas people have in their heads about their fellow human beings, about their own life, these ideas impact these topics such as should we allow, or for whatever that means, who is we, that we should allow uh, the radical expansion of human life. So this is how I read these statistics. On the first level, they're shocking. On the second level, when you understand why people are so skeptical to radical life uh, expansion, you see the common tropes of the dominant philosophy of our times, which is a philosophy of low expectation and a philosophy very skeptical towards the idea of human agency. But we have more to say on all this. And, and just to be clear, Nikos, uh, this graph with what would a future with radical extension look like, these are not necessarily that the people answering were saying, these are my arguments against radical life extension, but I, but I still think in both of our experience when talking about the topic, people do offer these arguments um, against life extension. Yeah, and, and, and by radical here, I think we're meaning like more than 120 years. Yeah, but actually it says decades. So maybe it would be even till a hundred, but actually then let's break this down. Let's break down the egalitarian argument, which says if not everyone can have it, then no one should have it. And let's think how would our world be if we applied this to everything. What if we applied this, for example, to a medical procedure like the PAP test, which is the test for cervical cancer by a Greek guy, Dr. Papa Nicolaou. That's why it's called PAP test. So when PAP test became available, was it available for everyone in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America? The answer is obviously no. But are these people today better off by the fact that doctors were free to pursue this new great discovery? And the answer was, is obviously yes. Very, very quickly, it became available to everyone. Another example, the smartphones. What if we told around 2010, either ev if not everyone can have a smartphone, forget the smartphone. It's a waste of our time and energy to, to produce this. But then fast forward to 2023, we see that 70% of the people actually have a smartphone, 70% of the world population. So not only it's a grievous uh, violation of the rights of people to pursue their own vision, their own uh, productive work, whether on the field of medicine or on the field of technology, but also it has very, very bad effects to the people who actually need these developments and the people who would benefit from them. Maybe not today, but they will benefit from them in five, 10 years or even earlier when these become more and more available. So I think the argument from egalitarianism tells us more about the people who support it. I see this as an argument motivated by envy. If I cannot have it, no one should be able to have it. And uh, did you want to say something about the uh, resources issue? 
Oh, that, that's my favorite one. Because the first person I ever heard being against a radical live expansion was a, an environmentalist. So what is their claim? Their claim is, if we live longer, we will be consuming natural resources for longer. And here we get to the old Malthusian argument, which says, resources are scarce, they're finite. Imagine a plate with chocolates. The longer we hang around and we eat and we take some of the chocolates, the sooner the plate will be empty. Therefore, sooner or later, we're going to run out of resources. Again, the first, uh, the most prominent supporter of this argument was Thomas Malthus already from the early 19th century. And of course, no other point of view in history has been so wrong as the Malthusian point of view. What do these people miss? They don't understand how productiveness works. They don't understand production. We don't survive and thrive by picking apples from the trees. If this was the case, we would have gone extinct when we reached the threshold of, I don't know, one, two billion. The way we survive and thrive is by producing the sources we are using. How do you explain that today, with a population of eight billion, there are more barrels of oil than a hundred years ago when the population was smaller and the use, the, the, the use of these resources was much smaller. Because we've become better in finding more oil, we've been better in using this oil in a more efficacious way, and also we have found 10 other resources to substitute oil with. So is oil technically a finite source? Yes, it is. But the, the most important resource is our mind, is human ingenuity, is our freedom to use our mind to produce things. This is why we have more food. This is why we have more energy. So this idea that if we live a bit longer or a lot longer, we're going to run out of sources is a fundamental mistake. It sees human beings as just mouths that consume resources and not as hands that actually produce sources based on our minds. So when I was teaching this topic uh, in a philosophy class, I, I thought most of my students, um, I I've seen that argument, but most of my students were thinking, I'm probably not going to want to live more than 80 or 90 because after a while life gets boring. Uh, you could call this like the boring, boring, uh, the boredom objection to life extension. Um, and I, mean, I think that kind of says more about how you're approaching life than it does about anything else. That, I mean, there are people who live to 50, 60, 70 who might be bored with their lives, but the, the the way to make life not boring is to do something with your life, to, to find things you care about and, and pursue them. And I don't think you run out of those. If, if you, I mean, there are always new things to tackle, new challenges, new jobs you can try. Um, there really is no reason why life should become boring. Um, and I mean, occasion, and also occasional boredom, just like being bored in a moment is not so severe a problem that it would, that it should cause someone to say, I've had enough of life. The kind of boredom that would be an issue is the boredom that's kind of chronic, lasting, causes depression. And, and I think that's just a symptom of how you're approaching life. Um, so that's what I would say to that. 
Um, I, I've also seen the thought just among normal people who are making common sense arguments uh, that if life is really radically expanded, really radically prolonged, it will take away the kind of urgency we have in life that if you have 150 years to achieve a goal, 150 years to get the next promotion at your job or 150 years to finally lose the weight you're trying to lose, people that it would just make sense to stall and delay and procrastinate and there will never actually be any strong urgency to, to finally act and they see that as a bad thing. Um, but I, I don't think this is actually, it has an initial plausibility to it, but there is still urgency in life, no matter how long a lifespan we have. Um, there are opportunities that only come around once, like if you're meeting the love of your life. Um, if, if you miss that opportunity because you're procrastinating, you miss that opportunity. Um, and there's also the fact that decisions we make now, no matter how long our life is going to last, have a lasting impact. If you make bad choices, you may never be able to recover from them. If you make good choices and you develop a good character, um, that's going to have an impact for as long as you live. And so I, I, I think it's ultimately just not true that there won't be um, the kind of urgency that we find desirable. That it, there will it be, sounds a bit like that. sounds a bit like projection from these people. So. And here's the thing, like, I don't want to be cruel, but if someone thinks that their life shouldn't be that long, like, okay, I think everyone should have the right to have an exit or whatever. But to make this argument about everyone else, like, oh, you know what, this, uh, like, imagine if Ayn Rand lived till 150, we might have gotten three more novels. Do you think she wouldn't be super, super excited to write these novels? We know that till the end of your life, she was working as much as her health allowed her to work or you see you see some uh, I, I follow basketball and football you see some managers who are great managers in their 70s and it's it's what keeps them young it's what there's always a new season there's always a new opportunity like greg popovich the great basketball manager just signed a new contract with san antonio spurs and he's probably in his somewhere in his 70s and th there's a fire inside him now I can build a new team. I've built two championship teams in the past. Now I'm going to build a new championship team. So we come back to what we discussed about do values to pursue. As long as you have things to pursue, as, as long as you have goals, things that inspire you, things that motivate you, then life, you, you always want to have more time to pursue them. So I think this argument is a projection, the argument from boredom to put this way, and is an argument that should be dismissed. Or at least I dismiss yeah, I know. it from I, the context wanna... of my life. Same here. I, I want to live to see what other planets we visit, what, what happens when we go to other planets. Uh, I want to live to see all the new uh, technology that I can't even dream about yet. Um, and I, I can't imagine getting bored given the pace of human progress. So what, what else is uh, another argument for not uh, expanding our lifespan or our health span, as Peter Atia puts it? Not the same thing. Lifespan yeah. is just breathing. Health span is living without disease or disability. Yeah, so I think the other, the other 
thought that I've seen just from normal common sense people um, is really a confusion between lifespan and health span that they look to what has been true in the past. They look to what has happened to maybe their parents or their grandparents when they approach an old age. Um, and, and often what happens is, you know, their parents lose their abilities. They, they start getting injured. Uh, they might suffer from Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. And, and they extrapolate from that to say, well, a longer life would be this life um, that I mentioned Gulliver Tra you know, that uh, Jonathan Swift depicts in Gulliver's Travels, uh, and that's not a life you want to live. But um, I, I think I think we need a little bit of imagination, uh, you know, to extrapolate better from what is happening in biotechnology today, and to see where that technology could go in another 20, 30 years. To see that no, we might actually be able to live healthy, fulfilling lives up into up past 100, 110, 120. Um, ideally now, longer, but at least... Some... Let's hope. So there are also those yeah. some heavy artillery in philosophy who make arguments that are slightly more philosophical than just, well, it's going to be boring or, well, it's not going to be worth it. So, John, you, you are the philosophy guy in this stream. So why don't you guide us a bit on what are the philosophical, let's say, who are the philosophers who are at the forefront of this uh, skepticism against life expectancy? Yeah, so uh, we uh, looked a bit at the, I, I call it the intellectual leadership of this movement against life extension uh, and other forms of biotechnology. Um, and although I, I'm, I don't, I didn't have the sense that these arguments of the intellectual leadership had filtered down to my students. I do think these people have been in positions of power. Uh, they have been consulted by politicians and the two that, uh, the two, um, well, one's actually a, a bioethicist who was a doctor and one is a philosophy professor from Harvard. Um, that's Leon Cass and Michael Sandel that we looked at uh, carefully for this podcast. Um, Leon Cass, of his importance, he, he was, he's, nicknamed the president's philosopher that was under George W. Bush. But both of them were a part in under George W. Bush 2003 of the president's council on bioethics. Uh, and they both written on this topic and on the topic of other forms of uh, biotechnology. And these are the arguments which can have a real effect in the regulation coming from Washington and other places, right? If, if these arguments went out, politicians who listen to them are in a position to make it more difficult or put barriers up in the way of the development of life extension technology. Um, and, and so that's why I think it's important to tackle these arguments, um, even though they're um, on another level than the arguments we've looked at so far. Um, Let the record and... show that the fact that there is such a thing as bioethicist uh, team around the White House makes me a bit uncomfortable, but maybe that's just me. So let's proceed. Especially when they make the arguments they're making, yes. Um, and now I, I think they'll make both arguments based on self-interest, you could call it. They'll argue it may not actually be in our self-interest to prolong our lives. Um, although there, a lot of the arguments come down to the ones we've already looked at, like it will take away the urgency in life. 
Um, and so I think we've addressed those. And ultimately, they don't seem to find those the most convincing. Um, there's, a, there's a point in the 2003 report to the president uh, where the authors, and this includes Cass and Sandel, where the authors say, yeah, although those self-interested reasons not to pursue life extension, there's something to them. But if you consider costs and benefits, probably the benefits of life extension to the individual still outweigh the costs. But then they say, ah, but we shouldn't only be considering costs and benefits to the individual. We need to consider the costs and benefits to everyone, to, to the whole. Um, and there, there is the strong suggestion uh, that the, the cost to society, the cost to the collective of life extension um, outweigh the benefits. And so uh, we can talk a bit about what they see as the cost. So let's, um, see, the, let's see the but, main arguments then. How the would the collective... Of... Yeah, uh, just, yeah, just so... in general, I, I think even it, the, the whole approach, of course, is that, oh yeah, it, it could turn out that it's really important to me to prolong my life, but because of these costs to the collective, I must sacrifice. So regardless of what else they go into, that is a, a mindset, an altruistic mindset of sacrifice for the whole. Um, but what we say time and again, philosophy always appears in every corner of every discussion. So there's a famous saying, politics is downstream from culture, but we would add, and culture is downstream from philosophy. So see this very key issue about life extension and see how the philosophy of self-sacrifice creeps in and says, yeah, maybe it would be good for you. But as you said, what if the costs for society are, uh, it's, it's a heavy cost. So let's see, what is this possible cost for society then? Yeah, so one uh, they mention in the President's Council report is what they call a glut of the able. Um, a, a glut meaning that if people are living longer and longer and, and they're still competent to live that, and they're not dying out, that there will be no you know, openings in the world, no job openings, no openings for new people to fill. Um, and then they also worry about the fact that, well, old people tend not to change much. They tend to be stuck in their ways, stuck in their ideas. Um, and so we will end up, I mean, imagine people today uh, complain, I've seen about President Biden being so old and going up against Trump who's so old and they want fresh new ideas. And one of the worries about people living longer and longer is that there will be no, no space to fill with fresh new ideas. Um, and I know, Nikos, you had something you wanted to say about that particular objection. Yeah, I don't really buy this argument. So, hey, people, you don't like Joe Biden or Trump, go to the primaries and vote differently. So there's, there's something almost deterministic there that, uh, oh, you know, these people, if they're old, they're going to keep uh, the biggest part of the pie for longer. There is no pie. Create your own pie. So... We have seen many young people being disruptors. Why? Because they came up with something new, with something more exciting. And at the end of the day, let's say Steve Jobs was still with us. If Steve Jobs at the age of 90 would still be the better CEO for Apple, more power to him. And I would also say, I would make the more, quote, utilitarian argument, we would all benefit from that. We would all benefit from that. So... Quite often these days, the young 
generation, my generation actually, was very entitled, claiming that, oh, the boomers stole our future, everything is too expensive, we cannot uh, buy a house. All these topics are real topics, they have real causes, but it's not a generation war. So I find a bit of simplistic determinism in this approach that says, oh, the boomers is going to take the biggest part of the pie. So I understand the argument, but I don't think it's an argument which is A, too concerning for me, B, even if it were concerning, this is no excuse on someone saying this technology or this, uh, this uh, yearning to, to get to a, to a longer life span should be stopped. So this argument for me doesn't really stand. Yeah, I, I have some sympathy with the argument. I know, for example, um, Galileo um, says at one point, it, it, the only way his defense of Copernicus is eventually going to win out is if the defenders of the old uh, Ptolemaic cosmology eventually die out. Um, and, and that sort of thing is possible sometimes. Um, so I don't, it's not that I have zero concern of this sort. Um, but the idea that even if this is a concern, the idea that the best solution is to have people die earlier than they otherwise could is nuts. Um, it's almost it, opposite eugenics, if you think about it. Yeah, in a way it is. In a way it is. Yeah. And it, it's a problem. Uh, th there are much more reasonable solutions than having people's lives cut unnecessarily short. Um, perhaps limits right. how old someone can be when they run for president, uh, if that's your concern. And, and um, there are other better solutions um and 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 ultimately i think this is so obvious that there are better solutions that i i, I think this argument is likely a rationalization that this is they give this as a reason but it's not not a real reason um yeah and i think we'll see what their real reasons are okay so what else do they put on the table in terms of uh, stopping us from from yeah, so, um, a, having a radically lengthier life. So as far as their real reasons, I think the, the clearest place to look um, uh, is an article in The Atlantic you can find uh, by Michael Sandel, again, who is also on this committee, uh, referring to the president. Um, this, if you want to look this up, it's titled The Case Against Perfection. Um, and it's not mainly about life extension. It, it, it frames itself as being mostly about other issues in biotech and genetic engineering, but the arguments do apply and are meant to apply to life extension too, especially the more effective the life extension is. And that's an interesting thing about the mindset here, which is the more effective and, and better working and easier the life extension is, the more these people would oppose it. That is, if, if life extension takes hard work and you know, has a chance of failing, maybe they'd oppose it a little. But if, it's, if you could take a pill, that would be the worst thing, if you could just take a pill and live longer. Um, and so why is that? Um, and the basic argument Sandel makes is that we need to see life as a gift and we need to see our abilities in life as a gift that there is something he thinks would be bad for us and for society in thinking that we have some some great command over over nature and over our fate um, 
Now, in religious circles, you might people might have called this playing God, but this is not necessarily, in his view, a religious argument that there's something bad about being godlike because we need to see uh, life as a gift and we need to see things that happen to us um, as a gift. Why? The argument, if, if you look at it, is ultimately that if if we're in if we have too great a control over our lives then other people are no longer in a position to expect he'll call it solidarity but basically the point is that there needs to be an argument for it being fair and just uh that the 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 better off need to sacrifice for the worse off. Um, if, if the better off think we can control everything, then and and there's no role for luck and things being a gift, then okay, everyone deserves what they get. It's a meritocracy, as he would put it, and there's no longer any room for demanding service to others or sacrifice to others. So I, I think this argument it it reveals that there is really a rationalization here. He wants altruism to govern. He wants altruism to be true. He wants it to be the case that he can demand that we all sacrifice to others. If we don't see life as a gift, he can't demand that. Um, and so the argument comes down to that rationalization. Um, do you want to say anything about that, Nikos? It's, it sounds to me like an attack on self-esteem. Like, uh, the, the, so don't be too proud because there are many things that are outside of your control. And somehow this is like, ha, you, th you think you're so great, but you, you don't know, for example, how your body is going to attack you because of some, I don't know, for your genes or whatever. So it sounds to me a very anti-humanist uh, argument. It sounds to me like an argument which says that don't get too, don't get too proud, don't get too, 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 too sure of yourself. So it's, and it's interesting that Sandel is the guy who wrote a book called The Tyranny of Merit. So we see a theme mm -hmm. there which says, you know what? be more humble because you're not as great as you think and being even greater than you are now is too risky for the rest of us. Yeah, he thinks not only that a lot of our fate depends on luck, but that we want to keep it that way. <laughs> but, yeah. but look, I mean, controlling nature and doing so wisely, that is how we live. Human beings live not by just adapting to nature, but by controlling nature so that we can thrive and, and hopefully live better, longer, healthier lives. That's, um, there's nothing he, he called, he would call that if you do it too much, some kind of, uh, I don't know, vanity. Um, and he advocates for some kind of what he calls humility, but, but this is our means of survival. This is how we live. We live, um, by, by looking at what the facts are and what we can do with things to make our lives better. Mm -hmm. And so just life extension is no different from any other issue where we do that. Right. Yeah. So are we done with the, is there any other argument? Because I have a meta point about, about all, uh, 
all this. Yeah, Shall we also say something yeah. about the playing God thing and uh, our relationship yeah. to nature? We've already hinted to it. Yeah. Did you want to say... You're um, in a better position to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it is true. You might ask, you know, why be opposed to life extension, significant life extension, if you're not also opposed to any other form of, if you want to call it playing God uh, or, or just controlling nature. Um, and, and these people are not opposed to other forms of that, right? They're, they're um, or at least they don't come out and say, like, we think we should not have antibiotics or, or flu vaccines. Um, which are, are just as much interventions into nature to make life better and, and longer. Um, and, and so you might ask how, okay, well, why are you opposed to significant life extension, or, or at least you're voicing these concerns about it, uh, but you're not, uh, you're not coming out and saying we should go back to the way we were living in the year 1900. Um, and, and ultimately, all, all they we can really say is, well, we're, we're considering these things on a case by case basis. Um, and, and, you know, we examine the case of a flu vaccine and we, we you know, people are not, um, if you look at what people are trying to achieve with that and, and the way they do it, and if you look at the costs and benefits, okay, yeah, the, the, there on that one, the, the benefits outweigh the costs. But we, we were really thinking that on this one, on the life extension one, the costs are going to outweigh the benefits that it's going to, there's no, there's no real principled argument here. It, it's, it's, it, it comes down, I think, to an emotional reaction. Um, and, and partly, I think, due to the fact that life extension is just a, not a familiar phenomenon yet. Um, so we, we've grown comfortable with the, the extension of the human lifespan we've already had. And, and so the emotional reaction, I think they have to that is, is it's fine, um, right. but this is not yet familiar. And, and so if you're just looking at things on a case by case basis with no real principled way of assessing costs and benefits, um, it's, I think you can see um, their emotional reaction will be different, but there's not really a principled argument. So here's, here's would be my meta, my overall point. So for me, how we use life expectancy and life extension is a litmus test on how they view human beings. Do they view human beings as efficacious, as worth? Do they view life as worth living? Or they view life as something which is a chore or even human beings are as being who are inherently evil. And the sad thing is that both the left and the right more and more are very, very skeptical towards these technologies for different reasons. So it's, it's very interesting to look back in the very early days of the Soviet Union, some idealistic uh, and mistaken communists, they had some of the first ideas about what we would call transhumanism, overcoming the human limits. And of course, within a few years, within the Stalinist regime, they were completely put aside because that was not the point of the regime. The regime did not want to celebrate or expand human life. Actually, it was a regime that was very good in doing the opposite. 
And then the left obviously jumped in the environmentalist bandwagon, so no surprise that the left doesn't support it. Lately, though, more and more, I see conservatives being very skeptical towards this intervention. Why? Because we play gold or because I've seen lately an argument that says that, quote, transhumanism is related to transgenderism. So their obsession with the culture wars and the issue of gender is so much that they think that if you try to, quote, intervene in some ways in your body so that you live longer, it's the same as uh, denying reality, or I'm not even sure exactly what their argument is. But the one thing which is for sure is that more and more I see people on the right being skeptical towards all this. So both left and right, I think, are anti-humanist, and you can see it on how they view the issue of life extension. Yeah, and just going back to that poll data, most people, um, despite Peter Thiel's book being a bestseller, most people are not, either don't want life extension or at least aren't enthusiastic about it. So if you, if, if you want to live a longer life, if this is something you do care about, you need to be vocal about it. You need to you know, make known that you care about this and, and that's the only way that more research will get done in this area and that, that the government will at least not get in the way of that research. Um, I did want to mention we had uh, two Super Chat donations, which we deeply appreciate. Um, one of them is And, a and the one is a very interesting question. The, the question by Sosbot. Thank you very much for your contribution. How would James Taggart react to the extension technology? What do you think, Dan? I have, I have an idea. Uh, speculative question, obviously, but I, I would think... I think he's not interested in living longer himself. And so I think he would want to take that ability away from other people too. Yeah, I think to begin with, he couldn't care less because, so James Taggart is a protagonist, is one of the villains in Atlas Rugged. So Ayn Rand presents him, he's something like 40, but he looks already much older because he goes after nothing positive in life. So he's beaten by life. Although he's rich, he has everything that someone would expect that would, he would have the ability to live a good life because he lacks values, he couldn't care less. He wants actually to destroy life. So I think Taggart would either be completely indifferent or as the novel goes on and he goes in a darker and darker path, as Dan said, he could also be against it. And also we have a very generous super chat by Richard, who is actually working, he says, as he says, in, in life extension technology. So, so more power to you, uh, Richard, and uh, hopefully you're going to have some good results. Now, we mentioned. Yeah, I, I just want to thank, um, thank Richard not only for the donation, but for working on life extension technology. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully you're going to succeed and uh, let us know if there's any good uh, tips that we can follow. Now, we mentioned uh, James Taggart, who is the hero of Atlas Shrugged. And if you haven't read Atlas Shrugged, here is your opportunity, because the Ayn Rand Institute makes it possible for you to download a free copy. So if you're 18 to 25 years old, and if you're a, if you're a student, you can download the free digital copy of Atlas Shrugged. Now, people are saying Atlas Rugged, I cannot read it in the train, it's, it's too big. Well, you can download it 
you can download the digital copy and you can do it for free. There should be a link in the description and also a link in the in the chat. So another so next week we are going to address we're going to try to address a very difficult uh, topic which is uh, the topic of immigration and how immigration applies to the context of Europe. You hear a lot about Europe, you hear a lot about the impact of immigration on Europe, so we will try to figure out why what is the proper way to approach the topic and also is the United States in a similar trajectory with Europe when it comes to immigration. Overall, if you appreciate what we were doing, if you get value from this podcast, we would also appreciate for you to share it, maybe to leave a good comment, to start an interesting discussion in the comments. We All this would be very much appreciated. Also, if there's a topic that you would want us to discuss, if there is a topic that, a book like the book we discussed today or something that is of interest, drop us an email and we will take it into accordance. And every now and then we do Q&A episodes and we answer questions from the audience so you can send your question. You will see the email is newideal at einrand.org. So, Dan, thank you very much for uh, this uh, discussion. It was your idea, so I think you should have the last word. Oh, I don't know if I have any last words, um, but I just I'll, I'll repeat. Um, if, if you want to live a longer, healthier life, not everyone is going to help make it possible for that to happen. So just be vocal about, um, about your support for this, for this issue. And it starts at the level of philosophical ideas, as we saw. So help us fight for these ideas. Thank you, Dan. Many thanks to everyone. All the best. See you next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.